If you like, you might open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18 for our text, 2 Kings chapter 18. Thank you very much, brother. Good to see all of you. Appreciate you being here and being a part of this meeting. We have just had fantastic crowds and fantastic singing and just been a lot of fun to be together and appreciate the elders here at this place invite me and, and, and Lisa or Lisa and I to come and, and to enjoy this time together with you. It's pure joy for us and, and great to spend some time with you guys. Some of you folks we've known for years and it's always a pleasure to be around you again, that kind of thing. Some of the folks, it's kind of a first time experience for us and it's been a pleasure to meet a lot of new folks this week and God bless you here at Denton and the work that you're doing for the cause of Christ. If you're visiting with us and you're from neighboring congregations, thank you guys for supporting the cause, supporting the meeting. A lot of you have driven a lot of miles to be here and helped your kids be here and that type of thing. We appreciate that. We also have some folks that's been visiting from the community and we're especially thankful that you're here. We want you to be welcome. We want you to feel welcome. You're welcome anytime the doors are open and I know the congregation here with open arms would love to have you come and to be a part of the work that they're doing here. All week long we've been looking at Old Testament stories, some lessons we can learn from Old Testament stories. So one of the things we've been doing is going through the story and then trying to glean some application of that. A couple of things I want to do during the week. One is I want you to know the story very simply. I want you to be familiar with the fact that these things are in the Old Testament and familiar with what happened in those stories. But secondly I want you to make application to them because they really do apply to us today. Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Tonight I want to look about look at King Sennacherib, very evil, wicked guy in the Old Testament. And I want to take, and we're going to basically scan through or look at the highlights of two different chapters in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Kings chapter 19. If you'd like to follow along and read 2 Kings 18 and verse and 2 Kings chapter 19. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Eli, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So I want you to notice a phrase here. First of all, king of Judah. This is after the kingdom had been divided. We'll talk about that here in a moment to show you when that happened. But Hezekiah was king and Hezekiah was a very righteous king. I want you to skip down if you would to verse number 3. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those children... Uh, under those days, excuse me, the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Syria, and served him not. Now, Hezekiah is king. Hezekiah is a righteous king. Hezekiah is one that all the other kings before him that had built up brazen serpents and altars and, and to false idols and gods, etc. He tore down all that stuff and he started to restore worship. He wanted to follow God. He wanted to do what was right more so than all of his other fathers before him. He wanted to do what it was that God wanted him to do. And, and we see here his attitude in that. Uh, verse number 7, that he is being a prayer 
oppressed by the king of Assyria at this time. And he rebelled against him. He didn't want to do that. Now, most scholars would render that probably the king of Assyria was probably putting some sort of a tax on him or something along those lines. And he said, I refuse to pay that tax. Skip down to verse number 9 if you would. It came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Eli, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Skip down to verse number 11. The king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor by the river of Gozan in the cities of the, of the Medes because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded and would not hear them nor do them. So here we've got a situation where Israel is taken into Assyrian captivity because they would not obey the voice of God. And Hezekiah is king of the south. Now let me give you some of the context to this for just a moment. And I'm going to move my PowerPoint around a little bit and give you a little bit of an idea. If we go back to the days of Abraham, for instance, we started with Abraham. Abraham had one promised seed. His one promised seed was Isaac. And that was where the lineage ultimately... If you look through the Old Testament and see a a thread that runs all the way to the New Testament to bring us to Christ, it is through the seed of Abraham. We see the fulfillment of that mentioned in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 16 where he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. Christ was the fulfillment of that. So when you walk through the Old Testament and you start with Abraham as the father of the faithful, he was the top Jew guy. He was the top Israelite. If you walk through his lineage, you're going to end up at Christ. I want to show you how that happens. His promised seed was Isaac. That's to get you to Christ. Now he had Ishmael off to the side through Hagar which was handmaiden and those individuals became a culture or a nation within themselves but that's not the nation we're talking about tonight through his promised seed of Isaac Isaac also had some children first of all he had twins or he had twins Jacob and Esau Jacob and Esau were twins. You can read through that. We're going to look at a little bit about that Sunday night when we talk about the story of Obadiah. If you follow the lineage of the Esauites or the children of Esau, they become the Edomites. Esau was known as Edom. And Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, is prophesying against the Edomites. They became a people of themselves. They were cousins to the people we're going to follow. I want you to follow the lineage of Jacob. Now, if I could get this to come up here. We're going to look at Jacob, one of the twins. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. So Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'm going to walk you through this. And I don't know if you can read them or if the names are large enough to read, but to get them all on one screen... Y'all remember the very first son of Jacob? His name was Reuben. You remember the third son was Levi. That was the priesthood tribe. The fourth son was was the tribe of Judah. And it's that tribe of Judah that brought you to Christ. Now I've left out several names in there. You can go to Matthew 1, early part of Luke, and you can find the lineage of Christ. But that was the lineage where we read about... Uh, Jesse and King David and Solomon, etc. All of the kings of the Old Testament. That brings us through that lineage to Christ. There were some other names like Issachar and Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, 
Benjamin. And that gets you the 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I'm going to put this kind of simplistic because a couple of things happened with the tribe of Levi, etc. But essentially those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They inhabited the land. Now when they came in to the land. Now through the story of Joseph and ultimately Moses they went down to the land of Egypt. They came out of the land of Egypt. When they came in to inhabit this land they fought a battle and most of you know the name of that battle. Elvis Presley sang about it. Joshua fit the battle around Jericho. Okay? We remember that story. They went around the city one time a day for seven days on the seventh day. Walked around the city seven times on the seventh time. Shouted with a great shout. Blowed the trumpets. Blowed the horns etc. And the walls came tumbling down. One of the greatest stories of victory for God's people that he was able to inhabit his land. Many a sermon's been built around that great battle of Jericho. And they inhabited this land. When they did, they broke it off into various different pieces. Dan got a part of the land. Naphtali got a part of the land. Uh, Reuben got a part of the land. And their descendants, if you go to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, it numbers the people. What tribe and how many people were in this land? And what tribe and how many people were in this land? Those 12 tribes divided that that, uh, now, for about 450 years, God set up a system of judges. And they were plenty happy with the system of judges. Uh, I mean, God was plenty happy with it. And you, I want you to imagine or get your head around for just a moment, 450 years. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Add 500 years to that. Okay, you're at 1992. That's a long time. Okay? We, we spit off 450 years like it's nothing in history. Sorry about that. It'll dry here in a moment. You can flake it off. Um, it'll, it, the reality is 500 years is a long time. 450 years is a long time. And God set up a system with Jesus. If somebody had some sort of a problem, somebody had some sort of a civil dispute, they would bring it before those judges and they'd make a decision on it. But the people got to where they wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations around them and they wanted a king. And God said, you don't need a king. In fact, there's three different reasons you don't need a king. Number one, he's going to want an army. He'll take your young men. You don't need a king. Number two, he's going to take your young women because somebody's going to feed and clothe the army. Number three, he's going to tax you real heavy because somebody's going to pay for the army. You don't need a king. They kept crying out for a king. He gave them a king. And in fact, there were three different kings. Saul, David, Solomon. Each one reigned for about 40 years apiece. During those days, each one of those men basically started out as pretty good guys. You remember David was a man after God's own heart. But before the end of his days, do you remember what David was doing? He was killing Uriah the Hittite and sleeping with Bathsheba. He had turned into a murderer, an adulterer, etc. A man after God's own heart that found himself separated from God. Now, I'm not saying he stayed in that condition. We read in the book of Psalms a very repentant heart where he's praying to God to cleanse him and, and, and forgive him of his unrighteousness and his sinfulness. And you remember Solomon. Solomon started out at a, and praying to God for wisdom that he'd lead God's people and God gave him wisdom. And God gave him all the other things too, wealth, etc. 
And before the days of his life was over, God warned him and warned him and warned him, these women are going to turn you away from me and you're going to be serving false gods. Solomon bowed the knee to false gods, to idols, before the days of his life were over. Not saying he stayed in that condition till he... I'm not saying he died in that condition. Most people would render the book of Ecclesiastes as a book of repentance of Solomon where he's saying, I've tried wine, women, song, education, all the different things. I want to tell you it's all vanity, vexation of spirit. He gets to the very last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes and he said... Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. He tells us of all the things he tried in life, it was all vanity and vexation of spirit except fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And, but Solomon dies. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the kingdom. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, goes to the young men and says, how do I lead God's people? And the young men said, you think your dad was bad? You need to be worse. You think he ironed with his thumb? You need to, iron, you need to rule with... He ironed with his thumb? You think he ruled with his thumb? <laughs> Sometimes I crack myself up. Um, then he, you need to rule with an iron fist. That's where the word iron came from. You need to rule, rule with an iron fist. You think your dad was bad? You be worse. He went to the old man. He said, how do you think I ought to lead God's people? He said, be gentle with them. Be patient with them. They'll follow you if you'll be easy on them. Don't be too hard on them. And he took the advice. You remember the story in the Old Testament? He took the advice of the young man and he began to lead very harshly. And there was a division in the kingdom. These twelve tribes became ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. Okay? That one of them was known as Israel to the north. The other was known as Judah to the south. So when you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you read about the king of Judah, you're talking about the kingdom to the south, which is where Hezekiah was in the stage of this reading. And sometimes you're reading about the nation of Israel. That's what happened here in Israel when we see the Israelites were carried away into Assyrian captivity. Now I want to put that a little bit in a timeline for you also. If we started with the creation of man back here, 2013 up here and Christ's birth right here at 81 and so Christ was 33 when he died give you a kind of a perspective AD means Anio Domini or the year of our Lord everything before 81 was BC or before Christ if you go back to a couple of dates in history and Brother McCorkle might disagree with me a little bit on the exact date some of you others may too as well there's a couple of different dates that turn around but we're within a year or so some would say 606 B.C. I generally learned that and understand it to be 605 B.C. I promise you neither person is right or wrong in that situation. You're just trying to except Brother McCorkle may go well that's what you think. You know you think nobody's right or wrong. But the reality is that's when the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity and stayed there for 70 years. This northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity in 723 B.C. Where the time frame we're reading here in 2 Kings chapter 18. The kingdom's already been divided. Hezekiah is king of the south. Israel is carried away. We just read it. Just he, Israel's carried away into Assyrian captivity. There is a real approach that's being taken because what happens here, if I can back up to my map, here's Assyria over here. And Assyria has already come in and taken in all of those different tribes to the north. And he's pressing in. He wants in Jerusalem. And he's going to try to press into Jerusalem. And now we introduce you to Sennacherib. Verse number 11 of 2 Kings 18. 
the king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Hala and Habar by the rivers of Gozan and the city of the Medes, or cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded him, it would not hear them nor do them. Now in the 14th year, verse number 13. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me that which thou puttest on me I will bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off from the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. I want you to stop there a moment and realize what's happening. Sennacherib is king of Assyria over here. And he's come in he's already whooped all of these people to the north. They're in captivity. They're in Assyrian captivity. Those are the ten tribes that assimilated into the Assyrian culture never to be heard from again. But now he's come into the south. He's come into the southern kingdoms and he's gone into all the different cities and he overtook them. And now he's coming into Jerusalem and that's where Hezekiah's at. And Hezekiah's in the city of Jerusalem and he's going... I know we had been rebelling against you. Maybe you had laid a tribute or a tax on us and we refused to pay it. And now you're coming to collect. And now he's put on his diplomacy hat. He says, I must have offended somehow. What is it that you're needing? You've surrounded my city. I must need to do something to try to help you. And he placed a tax on them of a lot of gold. And scholars are generally render that as about 11 tons of gold. And he goes into the temple. He strips it off of the everything he can find, all the gold and all the silver, and he finds all of that and he gives it to him. It says it's kind of like a ransom or extortion money. Gives it to him and says, "Please stay out of our city. We're go- we'll pay whatever you owe or whatever we owe, whatever you charge, we'll pay." Verse number seventeen. The king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabasaurus and Rabshikah and Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and they came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the threshold, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshikah said unto them, Speaking out Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? So now the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, sends out his messengers and he starts yelling to these people in the city of Jerusalem. He says, you know, who are you putting confidence in? You're putting your confidence in Hezekiah? Or even the God of Hezekiah? Why are you putting your confidence in Hezekiah? You know King Sennacherib has won every battle and he's taken every piece of this land around you. You're surrounded. Why Why would you have confidence in in Hezekiah? Keep reading if you would. 2 Kings chapter 18 verse number 22. He said, but if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Skip down if you would. Verse number 28. Then Rabshika stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in 
the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's got these men. The Jews are on the wall of the city, and they're around the city, and, and now King Sennacherib, the armies of Assyria, have surrounded the city. And, and he says, Why are you trusting in Hezekiah? Why are you trusting in the God of Hezekiah? Don't let him talk you into trusting him or his God. He's just mocking him. And he's even doing it in the Jews' language. He wanted to make sure they could understand it. King Sennacherib's built up with pride. His armies are built up with pride. They've whooped everybody up until coming to the city of Jerusalem. And they come up against him and they said, We're going to take you down. Verse number 31. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And then eat of every man his own vine and every one his own fig tree and drink ye every one the, the waters of his cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive or oil olive and of honey that you may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? Where, have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of their countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And I want you to stop there just a moment because I want to focus in on what's taking place. He's just mocking them. He said, you're trusting in Hezekiah. You're trusting in the God of Hezekiah. Has that God kept me out of any cities of Judah or Israel? Absolutely not. I've whooped them all. And he's just yelling and screaming and mocking about it. And I want you to notice what the people did in return. Very next verse. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse number 36. And the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Let me tell you the kind of leadership that Hezekiah had. Hezekiah had the kind of leadership that his people followed. And he said, listen, they're mocking you and they're mocking Jehovah God and they're mocking our God. They're mocking who we are as a people. He said, I don't want you to say anything. I want you to keep your mouth closed. And they didn't say a word. They just let them mock. Let them be built up with pride. Let them claim that they can do whatever. Now you've got to imagine these people had to have been scared to some extent. We're surrounded. This is the same army that's been destroying all the lands around us. And they're surrounding us. What are we going to do? And he said, don't answer them. Don't say a thing. Skip down to chapter 19 if you would. Verse number 1 came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Y'all realize how many times we talked about that this week? He rent his clothes in twain. He sat in sackcloth and ashes. He's grieving. He's in mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. He's, he's sad. He's, he, what's happening? He's surrounded. He's heard about these people coming and surrounding his city and mocking his people and saying don't trust in Hezekiah. Hezekiah wasn't even present and they were still holding their mouth closed because the king had told him to not say anything. But when Hezekiah heard this, he was grieved. I want you to skip down if you would. And what did he do about this? Skip down to verse number 14. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. 
Now here's Hezekiah. He's in grief. He's in extreme sadness. He's surrounded. King Sennacherib is looking to take him and take hold of his city and his and, and everything about him. They're surrounded on every side. They're mocking Jehovah God, which is the God Hezekiah believes in. Hezekiah, remember, is the good king that, that trusted in him and tore down all the false God idols and all that. He trusted in God. And now he's surrounded and he's in sackcloth and ashes. He's wrenched his clothes and he takes the letter and he goes in to the house of the Lord and he spreads it before the Lord. I just love the phrase that's given there. Give it to God. Give it to God. And I want you to notice the prayer that he prays and how powerful this prayer is. Verse number 16, or verse number 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even Thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down Thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, Thine eyes and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were no gods but the work of men's hands wood and stone therefore they have destroyed them now therefore O Lord our God I beseech thee save thou us out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God even thou only what a powerful prayer he says I recognize God we're surrounded on every side And I want to tell you, God, they're mocking you and they're making fun of you. But he said, he, He is right. He has destroyed every other city around us. And He did throw their gods into the, into the rivers and in the streams and the waters, etc. But He said, God, You're God. Those gods weren't real gods. Those were the works of men's hands. Those were the creation of man. You're the real God. You're, you're God. And I pray you deliver us out of this if for no other reason than to prove to these people that you're God. We're surrounded on every side. And he spreads it before the Lord and says it's in your hands. Verse number 29. Or sorry, verse number 20. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria, I have heard. Your prayer, you came into the house of the Lord, you spread it before the Lord, and you prayed about you being God, and God deliver us so that they wouldn't be mocking His holy name. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, He's heard your prayer. He's heard your prayer. Verse number 21, This is the word of the Lord which He had spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed and against whom thou hast exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said, With a multitude of my chariots I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon. will cut down their tall cedar trees thereof and the choice firs thereof. And I'll enter into the lodgings of his borders and into the forests of his carmel. And basically, he just continues to repeat, yeah, what Sennacherib said, all of that has been happening and is true. But he said, I want you to know, Jehovah God's heard your prayer. And the one that said all of these boastful things and is standing up being boastful and proud, he's going to be brought low. Skip down, if you would, to verse number 29. This shall be a sign unto thee. 
Ye shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same, and in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards, and eat of the fruits thereof. And the remnant that is escaped to the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. So Isaiah the prophet comes, he says, I want to assure you that there's going to be deliverance for the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, it's not going to be very long. You're going to be planting. Your root's going to go down. You're going to spring forth fruit. And and year after year, you're going to be taking seed of, of what it is that you planted. You're, you're going to survive. You're going to be here. You're going to grow. There's a future for Judah. Verse number 31, For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, and zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Look at verse number 32. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. So here's the bottom line. Isaiah the prophet says he's not coming into this city. And I'm telling you, King Sennacherib will not touch this city. He will not shoot. He will, there will not be a shot fired. He will not shoot an arrow in this city. He'll not bring a bank against this city. I want to tell you, you're, this city is going to win and it will be by the hand of the Lord. He will know it's Lord God Almighty that delivers this city. And I want to tell you tonight the story of one of the greatest battles in the Bible. Maybe next to Joshua fought the battle around Jericho where they walked around the city for seven days and on the seventh day walked around it seven times and then shouted with a great shout and blew the trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. But let me tell you about this battle. This battle says in verse number 35, It came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. A hundred and fourscore and five thousand. A hundred and eighty-five thousand people died. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. God won this battle without ever shooting a shot. God won this battle without ever firing off an arrow. God won this battle without anybody laying their life. There wasn't a trumpet blown. There wasn't anybody walked around the city for seven days. And 185,000 men, army men, didn't wake up the next morning. Corpses. They had won. They were victorious. Now I want you to notice verse number 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and he went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god that Adram, Melech, and Sherezer his son smote him with a sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Asar Hadon his son reigned in his stead. You can do some research on, on Sennacherib and there's some... some uh, different artifacts, archaeological finds that find Sennacherib as a real character, a real individual in history. And even in these artifacts, there is a mention in those artifacts about the great battle that he lost. Kind of gives some evidence and some some at least internal slash external evidence of the story that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 19. Greatest, one of the greatest battles in the Bible. 185,000 dead men that were fighting against God and God 
took that city, cared for that city, protected that city, regardless of people mocking, regardless of people making fun of them. And he stood there and they knew it was the Lord God that accomplished that. Now, that being said, I want to look at some lessons I think we can walk away from tonight with that. Number one, God is sovereign. You know, when we talk about something being sovereign, we're talking about like the United States of America believes they're a sovereign nation. That means they've got the ability to pass laws, determine their own destiny. They've got the ability to... to uh, they're the ones that you don't sue. They're the ones that determine whether you can sue them or not because they are sovereign. They determine their destiny and their borders, etc. That's the United States of America. And other countries get really upset when we jump over into their country as, as a country. That's one of the accusations that was made of the United States when we got Osama bin Laden is we violated the sovereignty of Pakistan because we jumped over in there without permission, walked into their city and took Osama bin Laden, etc. So they're all upset because you violated our sovereignty. I want you to think about the word sovereignty. You know, basically, if we put that in the story of God, it's basically saying God is God and you're not. You're not on the same plane with God. He's God. And that's one of the arguments that Hezekiah kept trying to proclaim to God was that you're God and you're the God alone. When he laid in there and he spread it before the Lord, he prayed, you're the God, you're, you're our God, you're our God alone. And I want to tell you, God is sovereign. You remember these words in chapter 19 of verse number 19. Now therefore, O Lord our God, here's what Hezekiah was praying, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. You are sovereign. You've got the ability to do this. You've got the ability to make decisions. You're not even on the same plane with all the other false gods. There's a reason why I want to talk to you about that, but I want you to notice a couple other things first. I want you to notice a lesson in leadership of Hezekiah in this story. Hezekiah said, they're making fun of us. We're surrounded. They're yelling out, even in the Jews' language, mocking us and making fun of the fact that you're following your king and that you believe in Jehovah God. And the king had said, you remember there in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse number 36, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Keep your mouth closed. What a testament to leadership of Hezekiah. That even when oppressed on every side and other people were mocking and complaining, he just said, don't say anything. And, and here's the, the reality that shows amazing leadership. They didn't say anything. I don't know what it's like at y'all's congregation, but I can tell you in our congregation at home, it's we use this term a little this week with Yancey, it's kind of like herding cats. You know, it's just everybody heading out their own direction and you're going, hey, I'm your leader, which way did they go? And, and then somebody yells, squirrel! And all of a sudden they're heading the other direction. And everything's in chaos. And I want to tell you, sometimes it's challenging for people to follow leadership. To be able to have that kind of confidence in their people. If you attend a congregation that's got elders, you need to appreciate the fact that when your elders tell you something, that you simply do what it is they ask. You may not know all the facts, you may not know all the circumstances around it, but what they're doing is they're saying, don't do that. Don't say anything. Keep your mouth closed. And then what a testament to leadership when we actually do it. When we actually say our elders have said, don't say anything. We're not going to say anything. 
We're, we're going to do what it is they've asked us to do. They understand. Maybe your mom and dad as leaders tell you as young children, don't do that or I don't want you or keep your mouth closed about this, etc., etc. I want you to understand what I'm telling you. I'm just giving you what it is I expect out of you. Do this. And what a great testament when we actually listen to our parents and say, I'm going to be obedient to what it is they told me to do. I don't have to know every detail of the background. I don't have to know all the whys and wherefores. I just know what an amazing leadership that we can have that kind of confidence to know our parents love us, care for us, they're leading us, they're guiding us, they want us in Christ. I've got faith in them. And I'm just going to be obedient to them. What an amazing testament to leadership when we can do that. When we can do that in our congregations, when we can do that in our homes and in other places. What great leaders when we have that kind of confidence that we can follow our school leaders or others, our national leaders. What great confidence. We need that kind of leadership. And I think there's a message of leadership here that we can take from this story as well. Another thing I think you'll be familiar with and I think you can take from this story, Sennacherib's pretty proud of himself. Sennacherib says, you really think you're going to go against me? I've already defeated all of Assyria. I mean all of Israel. Uh, You've gone into Assyrian captivity. I've surrounded the city of Jerusalem and taken every one of their cities. Do you really think you're going to win a battle against me? This God that you're putting confidence and trust in, do you really think He's going to keep you away from me? He's going to save you from me? He's pretty pleased with Himself. Do you remember the phrase that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 5, the Scripture that's mentioned that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble? You know, one of the things we learn in Christianity is God resists the proud and He gives and He lifts up the humble. The virtues that you and I need to take on as Christian people of humility. And that's challenging for us. It's not a natural human characteristic. The natural human characteristic a lot of times wants to be better than or bigger than or something more than somebody else. And the reality is God exalts the humble and He resists the proud. And as proud as Sennacherib was, it was that pride that humiliated him that he went home and had lost the battle. Number four, I want you to know God answers prayer. You know the passage there in James chapter 5 and verse number 16 that says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God answers prayer. Do you remember... Hezekiah, he goes into the house of the Lord in sackcloth and ashes and he's rent his clothes. He's, he's in grief. He's wanting to fast and pray because he's concerned about his people being destroyed and he spreads it before the Lord. And I want to encourage you if you're going through a difficult time, if you're going through trial and tribulation, maybe you're not going through trial and tribulation, you're going through good times, spread it before the Lord. Pray to God. And you remember Isaiah the prophet came and said, He heard your prayer. Now, there's some things that's mentioned in this verse that we don't have time for tonight to really get into, but I just want you to consider very quickly the power of the word, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He didn't say some casual, unthinking, uncaring, not involved sort of prayer meant a whole lot. He said the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The last thing I want you to notice tonight is God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. 
I want to tell you, we don't always understand the mind of God. There's a passage found in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 8 that says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to tell you, a lot of times we don't understand how God is going to win the battle and how God's going to do and how God's going to help us and how... Because His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, when you look around you and you look at the things through the flesh, sometimes it's really easy to, to doubt. You go, this just doesn't make sense. How in the world? Well, I want to tell you, winning a battle where 185,000 dead didn't wake up one morning and the King Hezekiah won the battle against King Sennacherib without even firing a shot doesn't make sense. But it's God's way of winning a battle. It's God's way of accomplishing. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. And I just want you to know that your thoughts are not His thoughts. Your ways are not His ways. Just like the heavens are higher than the earth, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He understands all of the behind the scenes stuff that we do not. We need to spend less time questioning Him and a lot more time having faith in Him that He understands His perfect will and He wants us to just simply be obedient to it. If He tells us don't answer a word, we don't answer a word. If He tells us this is what's going to take place, if He tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, then we have faith that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And do you remember that very first point that we talked about? When we went through there that God is sovereign... He's got the ability to determine the laws. He's got the ability to determine the rules. He's got the ability to determine the boundaries of mankind. That's the God we serve. And all He asks of us is to simply have trust in Him, have faith in Him, believe in Him. And even when everybody else around mocks and makes fun of, that we just simply do and believe what He says He'll do. He knows what He's doing. And we need that kind of confidence in Him. That when we bow the knee in prayer, we have confidence and faith that we actually are approaching the throne of grace. And He actually is hearing our prayer. How He answers it, I don't know. I don't understand. Whether He does that through the law of nature and configures things out or whatever, I don't know. I promise you I don't understand. But I can tell you He still answers prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It may be mysterious to us how it happens. But I can't tell you the number of times in my life, and sometimes it's easier to look back and see it than it is to see it going forward, but where I see God's hand working in my life. And and maybe it's in decisions I made, maybe it's in directions I took, and all of those sort of things. But when you look back and you see the decisions and you see the things that's happened in life, you see God working. All of those things that you've been praying for and asking Him to do within His perfect will, you're asking Him to do for you. And you look back and you go, He really has. He's been doing exactly what He promised He would do. Have that kind of confidence and faith in Him. Are you a member of the Lord's church? If you're not a member of the Lord's church, I want to tell you, you are missing a great opportunity because you're missing the opportunity to approach the throne of grace. You're missing an opportunity to have that relationship and that communication with the Father. You willing to believe tonight that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name before men, be buried with Him in baptism to rise and walk in newness of life? You can put your feet inside the camp that says God's on our side. And if everybody else makes fun, it doesn't matter. God's on our side. Whatever God tells us to do, that's
that's what we're going to do. We've got faith in Him that we can pray to Him and He's going he's gonna to accomplish His ultimate purpose and His ultimate will. It may be mysterious to us. We may not even understand the how or why, but it works. That's the camp I want to be in. I want to ask you tonight, why not tonight? Why not make that decision tonight? This, tonight could be an opportunity that might be life-changing for you. Don't walk out of these two doors tonight separated from God. I want to tell you, you're on the winning side when you're on God's side. All the other things around you may look like, yeah, that's right, it looks that way, but they're false gods, they're false illusions. The fact that those things were thrown into the river by Sennacherib, those, the fact that those things are thrown into the river by Satan does not mean God is not God. God is still God. We're going to have to answer to Him. What He teaches, we're going to have to be accountable for. Tonight is your opportunity. Why not tonight? Make tonight a decision to come to Christ. And He'll wash your sins away. You can start off tonight a new creature buried with Him in baptism, entered in and placed in the kingdom of His dear Son. Won't you come tonight while we stand and sing the song that's been selected?